Cause your life was curious, hardcore and fast So now is the time for the Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast Now if your life was curious, hardcore and fast You feel like you want to put your life on blast Just call up the show and I talk about your past Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast This episode of the Dopey Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery Located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a place that treats addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience treating addicts with co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They offer a super comfortable detox, so if you're kicking benzos or heroin or booze or even coke or some sort of high-end molly disassociative drug, they will make sure that you are as comfortable as possible. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Surfing, sound bath meditation, fucking Uber Sweat Lodge, the spiritual choice. They have so much stuff you wouldn't believe it. Equine therapy. They do it all. If I was going someplace and I was totally fucked, you know I would go to Aloe, and so should you. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose a sober and clean way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. So here's the deal. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? Bikram Yoga? CASL is the solution. Dating is recovery is real. And worth considering if you have your shit together, CASL is the platform where you can meet like-minded crackheads, alcoholics, and junkies all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or the Google Play Store. And by the way, it's totally fucking free. They also have a video chat feature. We need you in CASL so their pool can expand. Find the junkie of your dreams at CASL. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Coffee. New sponsor, new sponsor, Grady's Cold Brew Coffee. Founded in 2011, independently owned and operated out of the Bronx at Hunts Point in New York City. And if you were curious, Grady is a real person. Grady actually sent me some of his cold brew kit, and I'm drinking it right now. It is delicious coffee. They make it with 100%. Arabica beans mixed with French chicory and signature spices, which are delicious and keto-friendly as well. The, the cold brew coffee is so strong and tasty and convenient, I cannot recommend it enough. If you love cold brewed iced coffee, you know how expensive your habit can be. We're talking four or five bucks a cup at the coffee shop, over $100 a month, and that's just the money. Now add up all the time you've spent waiting in those coffee shop lines. It is not exactly convenient. 
Luckily, there's a better way. Order Grady's Cold Brew online and have it delivered straight to your home or office door. You can pour a glass of Grady's famous cold brew straight from your fridge for less than a buck a cup, saving you over $1,000 a year, and shipping is always free. Are you ready to give it a whirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code DOPEY25. That's DOPEY25. Support Dopey by supporting Grady's. Their coffee is absolutely delicious. Order it at Grady'sColdBrewCoffee.com. Enter DOPEY25. Support the show and save 25% on your amazing cold brew coffee. And lastly, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through Dopey Patreon. And there's been a lot of a lot of hubbub, a lot of controversy in Dopey Patreon. There is a paywall for $2 a month. That's pennies a day. You get three Dopey Patreon episodes. This week on Patreon, we had author, entrepreneur, activist, and addict in recovery, Tim Ryan, uh, telling his incredibly crazy drug story his life story, and it is, uh, it's pretty heart-wrenching as well. Check it out at patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. At the $5 level, you get the three Dopey Patreon episodes, plus you get to go to the Dopey Patreon Zoom, which is hosted by me and Ray, and in October, we're doing the spooky Dopey Zoom with scary drug stories, plus the first-ever Dopey Game Show on Dopey Zoom, the stash word, where everybody in the Patreon Zoom gets to play and somebody gets to win. And I'll actually ship prizes, perhaps. I will. I'm going to ship prizes. At the $10 level, you get the three episodes, you get the Dopey Patreon Zoom, plus you get access to the fifth Dopey episode of the month. That's right. We're going to start doing a bonus episode every month. $10 Patreons get it uh, 30 days early. So if you want to throw down the 10 bucks, you get that, you get the three Patreon episodes, you get the Dopey Zoom, and you get Dopey stickers. You will get every Dopey sticker we have made coming straight to you. Just give me your address. I'll send it. It's at patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. If you want gear, we have new gear coming out. I don't think it's going to be out this week, but maybe next week. Check the dopeypodcast.com store. We have hoodies for the season, the zip-up train hoodie, the good-so-bad long-sleeve coffee mugs lots of good stuff on there i have a few dopey podcast snapbacks left i have a few oive snapbacks and i have a bunch of dopey beanies if you want them just venmo me at dopey podcast lots of ads lots of ads enough with the ads here is the show And welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave. I'm in the attic, and I'm sipping my Grady's cold brew iced coffee. And it is delicious and chicory, icy, delicious. Anyway, I'm like flying on the fucking cold brew. It's some serious, serious uh, business. And I have to say lately, I've been reflecting on the past and uh, just thinking about where I'm at, where the show is at. And I was... uh, You know, I've been going to a lot of meetings. I've been going to a lot more meetings than I was. And I was thinking about really the first episodes of the show 
And I was thinking about when me and Chris would talk to each other and to you guys and talk about using and be like, if you guys are using, that's cool, whatever, let your freak flag fly, all that stuff. And I still feel the same way about it. Like, if you guys want to use, go for it. It's not my life. It's your life. I just, um, I've been getting really, really into my recovery and into my program. And I'm trying to do what is suggested. And one of the things that is suggested is going to more meetings. And another thing that is suggested is praying. And another thing is meditation. And I'm doing all these things. And my life is really changing. And, um, and it's weird because I hear from people who think the show is selling out if it's not crazy, wild drugs, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is I'm not doing crazy, wild drugs, blah, blah, blah. I'm like raising a family and, you know, raising a two-year-old and a 10-year-old and trying to be sane and trying to not go nuts. And Every morning I take Susan before I work. And uh, if you don't know, Susan is my two-year-old and I often read to her. And one of our favorite books that we read is this Sesame Street book. And it's this book that has like five stories in it. And one of the stories is about Cookie Monster, who is, of course, every child's favorite addict. And in the book, Cookie Monster is baking cookies. And Cookie Monster... uh, basically teaches you how to bake cookies. And he's like, some butter, some sugar, some butter, some sugar. I try to do Cookie Monster for my daughter. and She thinks it's funny. Anyway, she said, some butter, some sugar, some eggs, some flour, some chocolate chips. First you mix, then you roll, then you bake, and then Cookie says, dum-de-dum, time to wait, which is very cute when Susan does it. And whenever we read the book, I always think to myself, Like, I want to make some chocolate chip cookies. If you guys listen to Dopey, you know that I love chocolate chip cookies, and I've never baked chocolate chip cookies from scratch. So I'm like, all I need is some butter, some sugar, some eggs, some flour, and some chocolate chips, and I'll have the chocolate chip cookies. But, um, and I always think about just buying them and throwing them to a fucking bowl and trying to mix them. And, uh, and winding up with some kind of fucked up chocolate chip cookies because I don't have a recipe. I don't know how much chocolate chips versus flour versus sugar versus eggs. And that's the way I've been looking at the program lately and in my recovery lately. Like, I need guidance to figure out how much should I be praying? How much should I be going to meetings? How much should I be meditating? How much should I be talking to other addicts and whatever? You know, this stuff is like, it's crazy. And if you want your recovery to be as delicious as Cookie Monster's cookies, like you should talk to people. And I've been talking to people and I have to say that my my recovery is getting better. And like, I still fight. I still get nervous. I still get worried. I still get jealous, but it's less so. And I find, you know, I, I shared at a meeting once that you need to be greased up Uh, so that you can slide through life like a greased up pig and you don't want the grease to run out. So in order to keep it going, you have to pray more, you have to meditate more, you have to exercise more, you have to go to more meetings. And like this is getting very culty, but I'm just offering this to anybody out there who is struggling. This is a recipe for having the, the most unencumbered life, the most greased up pig's life where you can glide through your shit and get through it easily. 
or at least as easily as possible, right? And you don't have to go to 12-step meetings. There's a million ways to find recovery, which is why we always push the alt-recovery movement. If you don't want to go to a 12-step meeting, then don't go. Just find your recipe and fine-tune it. Because again, if I reflect back at the beginning of Dopey, I was miserable and I still wanted to use, and it required a lot of work to find my way out of the fucking muck. You know, it sounds like church, all this shit, but it's really just a way to have a life that you can stomach and ultimately enjoy. And uh, I apologize to anybody that wants to hear the fucked up dopey shit, but I promise you there is more of it coming in the show. But that is my preamble of baking cookies and fucking having a happy and joyous and free existence. And um, I'm going to get a chocolate chip cookie recipe and I'm going to make some from scratch. But in the meantime, we had an incredible guest this week. He is an internationally famous DJ. He is called DJ Fat Tony. He toured with Prince and Madonna. Uh, Fucking, I don't want to give away the whole interview, but here he is, DJ Fat Tony, straight from London. All right, I'm super excited. I'm often super excited, but this is super excitement on an international stardom kind of level. His name is DJ Fat Tony. On one hand, he has arrogant tattooed. On the other hand, he has hypocrite tattooed. Welcome to Dopey, you arrogant hypocrite. I'm such an arrogant hypocrite. That's why I got him tattooed. Uh, I have surrender on one arm as well, and I've got help me on the other. It's like, you know what I mean? I don't even understand what surrender meant for years, but still got there in the end. Absolutely. And one of my, I mean, I've been immersed in the fat DJ Fat Tony story for a little bit. And one, I mean, I think the most incredible thing was you manifested this crazy dream out of nowhere. Like you, I mean, you started with basically just fucking with somebody and you ended up being one of the biggest DJs in the world. It kind of just, you know, it was never a desperate, like, you know, I never had like a game plan where I thought, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to have this great career I just everything just fell into everything you know what I mean it was all because I had a loud mouth and a loud voice and I was really insecure so I used my mouth as a shield and kind of like 35 years later here I am it's incredible I mean it's incredible to you know when when you look DJ Fat Tony up the first thing I think of with Fat Tony is the classic Simpsons character Fat Tony yeah yeah I was I they start you know if I was to have actually like a copyrighted that he would have he would have had to do one do you know what I mean never had to change the name yeah no that comes up you know it's kind of a weird one I mean here in the UK it never you know if you google DJ Fat Tony there's only one but there was another DJ Fat Tony in New York who was a rap DJ and thankfully and this is no offence or and anyone who knew him this doesn't, I don't mean it that way but thankfully he's dead now so no, if you, if you <laughs> google him it doesn't come up so there's only one now yeah Thank God it didn't work out for, for that DJ Fat Tony. And, <laughs> and apparently there was a gangster Fat Tony at the turn of the century. And, and I guess that's where the Simpsons got it from. But um, yeah. either way, you came up with DJ Fat Tony because you were overweight as a kid. Well, I didn't come up with it. I think other people came up with it. It was one of those names that was always whispered behind my back. You know, they'd say, oh, which Tony? they go, Fat Tony. Because I was a fat kid. So it kind of just, you know, I owned it. I owned it. I was like, okay, you know what? Yeah, I was Fat Tony. I'm no longer Fat Tony in that sense. But the name's stuck, and I've always been Fat Tony. 
know, you always get these idiots that go, you should change your name. It's like, yeah, fuck off. Do you know what I mean? It's like, seriously. I do know what you mean. They always want to call me Big Nose Dave, and I'm like, fuck you, Big Nose Dave. <laughs> um, now, now, own it. You got a big nose. Just own it. own it. I own it. I own it, DJ Fat Tony. I'm with you 100%. Uh, and, and DJ Fat Tony is quite svelte, just so the listeners understand. This is just a moniker. It is not a, it is not a person. It's just a name. Um, and, and, like, even if you weren't this ridiculously big-time international DJ who toured with Madonna, you know, did parties with Prince, you know, the list is, is endless, really. Um, your drug story is so prodigious and crazy that I would have had you on the show if you just stumbled down the block. You know what I mean? It just, it just is a bonus. I literally would have stumbled down the block, trust me, or, or crawled down the block back in the day, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure that I'm sure you've stumbled down many a block, as have I. Um, when did the using start? Like, what was the beginning for you? Uh, the using kind of the, looking back on it, the using started when I was a kid. You know, I, uh, the, you know, I'd always find things to change the way I felt. So, as a really young age, I had a an operation uh, on my lung, and suddenly I found this whole new world where if I found that if I was ill or I was sick, I would get attention. So from a really young age, I would throw myself downstairs. If I went out on my skateboard, I would always fall off and end up in hospital. There was always a way to go into hospital. And, you know, because that's, I, I had this, like, attention. I, I craved attention. So that kind of was the first kind of using when we look back on it. But when it came to drinking drugs, I think because I had an alcoholic father, I never ever wanted to be like my father, but I had an alcoholic auntie that I wanted to be like because she lay on the grass near our house and would drink bottles of cider and throw the bottles at the bus. And I found that the most exciting thing in the world. That energy that she had was so insane. I loved it. So I, I kind of always wanted to be, be her but not be my dad because my dad was a violent drunk. So I always swore that I wasn't going to be him. And then kind of when it got to about... 15, 16, that's kind of when I started to drink heavily and then drugs got introduced about, I'd say, a year later, yeah. Did your auntie have that I don't give a fuck kind of quality that you liked? She would just lie around and then throw the bottle and you were like, bingo. That's that's exactly it. I was, you know, she didn't give a shit about anyone. She, my, she wasn't allowed in our house. She would come and visit. My dad wouldn't let her in the house because she was an alcoholic and he wasn't. But, you know, so, and it's like, you know, you don't bring that shit to our doorstep, you know. So she would go and literally lie around the corner on these grass banks and we'd come home from school and I was just like, thinking, oh, my God, let Jenny be there, let Jenny be there. And she was there. And we'd see her every day after school and she just like, she, you know, she challenged anyone, fight people. She'd go in the shop and shoplift and steal everything. And it was just like, to someone who's like age nine or 10, it's the most exciting thing in the world, do you know? Because she had, there were, there were no boundaries. There were no boundaries. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was somebody who overthought everything and I was insecure and I was neurotic and I just thought and thought and thought and, and pondered why I wasn't better at this or that or, or what was this person thinking or trying to make sense of the world. And, and I know that when I first got drugs into me, it was just like, ah, oh, I can finally be cool and not give a shit. And it sounds like your auntie was the personal manifestation of not giving a fuck. Oh, she didn't give a fuck about anything. And that was what was so great about her. And that's why I was drawn to it. Because, you know, for me, 
I've kind of really never given a fuck about anything either to to a certain extent of what, of what people think of me on the outside, but on the inside, I'm really truly dying. You know, I'll have this loud mouth and I'll be like, yeah, in your face. But you know, what I take away from that is 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 it's just like I will be like a, a shaking mess underneath. You know, uh, and the louder I was, the further people went away and they didn't come near me. I was so scared of actual human interaction, like Jenny was, so that. She drank. She drank on that. Whereas at the age of ten or, uh, or eleven, I, I, I kind of what I took from her was be loud, be brass, be you know in everyone's faces. And I kind of like that was the way I was. You know, I was a gay kid. You know, I grew up on a council estate in England, in, in London, and everyone around me was really tough. And they hung out in gangs. And you know, I, I was leaving the house at thirteen and fourteen in, in women's clothes, in drag. You know, just to annoy my dad. Because my dad was like six foot four plumber. He had fingers like bananas and would punch through walls. You know, uh, we we were brought up as fighters. You know, if we had a fight and we got beaten, my dad would throw me out on the street and say, you go and beat him or I'll beat you. So we were brought up that way. And, you know, for me, I found it much easier to use my mouth than I did my fists. So it was kind of, that upbringing was kind of like, you, you don't suddenly spring it on everyone oh look I'm screaming at homosexual but you know they always knew because I never had to ever had to come out I think going out of the house in drag kind of sealed the deal yeah you know? yeah that, that probably <laughs> set them up for the stage of what was to come yeah. and I, I read or I heard in an interview you did that uh you became sexually active at a pretty early age and you wound yeah. up uh, having sex with a teacher because you know it stems from from uh, that, that whole seeking attention, you know, throwing yourself downstairs, setting fires out, all that stuff that I did as a kid, seeking attention. People prey on that. There's people out there that see that vulnerability and they prey on it. So it wasn't long before I got the attention from the wrong kind of person and was sexually abused. I started working for this guy uh, who abused me over the course of about four years. And I kind of been introduced to, to sex and sexualized at that young age empowered me to it it kind of made me feel that I could control what was going on it was very bizarre at that time of course I wasn't because I didn't have the tools to deal with that but suddenly I could control men I could get money off of men I could get watches I could get whatever I wanted and I kind of going to school never really happened because right by my school there was a public park and in that park, gay men met for sex. So I was in there all day, you know, meeting these guys at the age of 12, 13, and 14. And then when it got to secondary school, I was in there for about a year and I got caught. I was having sex with my drama teacher, funnily enough, uh, at lunchtime. And I fell through a glass window with my trousers around my ankles and in front of the whole school because it was lunch and they were all in the school halls eating. And uh, I kind of was brought up against the headmaster, but they wouldn't, and they would still wouldn't mention the fact that what we were doing, and they just said I'd smashed a window. And my mum was called to school, and they, there was this big agreement that I left school and he left the school because they didn't obviously want it to go down the legal route. So that was kind of the end of my schooling. You know, sex sex drove me. Sex was my first choice drug. And And when you talk about being so sexually active at such a young age, was that when the sex addiction kicked in? I kind of think, you know, it kicked in straight away. Although at the time I didn't realise it was an addiction, uh, I just thought I was having fun like oh, like all of us do with anything, whether it be smack 
whether it be crack, whether it be cocaine, we always think we're having fun, and straight away that fun turns into what it does. That one night turns into six nights. It was the same with the sex addiction at that age. I blew out school. I never went to school because I was too busy having sex. That sex drive, I completely, suddenly I felt wanted. Suddenly I was, you know, I had this power, this superpower as such, you know. So, you know, that was that was addiction. That was really a really strong addiction because I didn't give a fuck what anyone thought. You know, I would get caught doing this stuff and I still didn't care. And, you know, it, it became my primary purpose was to have sex with men. And, you know, as a kid, when you're when you're like 13, 14 and you're just coming into puberty in that sense uh, and you're being sexualized from such a young age, that becomes your world. Like cocaine does, like heroin does, it becomes your world. Everything is measured in that substance. So my life was measured in sex at that point in time. Do you think it's that which is what led you to the DJ scene, to the club scene, to the King's Road scene? I think, well, it definitely had a lot to do with the fact that I was kicked out of school because straight away I started hanging out in the King's Road. And at the time, King's Road in Chelsea, London, is if you see all these like iconic early 80s and late 70s pictures of punk rock, that's where it came from, King's Road. It was like, it was like modern day social media. People walked up and down that road to be seen. And I, I, I live very near it. So, it was like five stops on a bus for me. And so it was the next destination. And, of course, I was drawn to that attention and that that energy. So what, getting a job working there, first of all, I worked in a newsagent, which I stole from every day to go and buy new clothes from. Then I left there and then worked in the Great Gear Market, which was an indoor market. And, I, you know, the stealing become the next drug because I could steal all this money. And it was like, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I can buy what I want. And that become the new high. That was the next high, was the stealing and, the, and all the money. And then the drinking came on that. Because by that point, I'd lost weight. So I know I was shield. The shield had gone. The fat, the, the weight went on after the abuse. So that I, it was a protection. It was like a, a bumper of fat. So that, that went because, you know, suddenly you get called fat and you, get, you feel awful and your low self-worth kicks in and we're from the sex addiction, like any other addiction, we feel like shit, we feel worthless, we're less than, you know, being fat in that position is an awful place to be because that just plays with your mind where you just think that, oh, you might as well kill yourself at the age of fucking 15. You know, those thoughts always went through my head. So I made the conscious decision to lose that weight and once I lost that weight, I lost that shield. So then the drinking came into play. So suddenly I'd be out with my friends. I was always the last to leave the pub. Even at 16, you know, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was kind of just the journey. When did uh, drugs start popping into the scene? So at that point in time, drugs kind of, people were taking really bad drugs in London at that point. They were all taking speed and shit like that. That never really appealed to me. You know, I, 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 one night I was, I think it was about 15, about 16, 15, 16, I went to a club called Heaven, which was like the biggest gay club, the biggest gay club. It had just gone from disco and it had gone into house and it was like the only men-only club in Europe and it was like this, like, for, for a young gay kid, it was insane. And I went there on a Saturday night and I didn't go in. <laughs> I stood outside against the wall like some old bit of rent boy. But I was waiting there all night because I was so scared to go in because 
I kind of just knew once I'd gone in, that would be the end of it, or uh, I would never come out again. And I stood there, and I literally that night, uh, a group of guys, loads of guys walked by, and I was, I was wearing a Fiorucci T-shirt, and it had the wings and the two angels, and I remember it vividly to this day. It, and uh, this guy, group of guys walked by, and one of them went, "I really like your T-shirt," and I was like, "Yeah, thanks, it's Fiorucci, like really camp." And they, they were like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "I'm waiting for my friend." And the doorman had said at that point, he's been waiting for his friend for four hours. And they were like, your friend's not coming, is he? And I was like, no. And they were why don't you come in with us? So I went into heaven with this group of guys. And then later on that night, I was with them all night, such a laugh with them and everything. And then they went, we're going to a party afterwards, do you want to come? And I was like, well, I'd already lied to my mum telling her I was staying somewhere. So I was like, yeah, I'm coming. So off I trotted, and it was Freddie, Freddie Mercury's house, and I went to his house you know, in Holland Park, and uh, someone offered me, the tray was going around with, with Coke on it, and someone said, do you want a line of Coke? And I was like, no, 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 I don't do drugs. And they were like, try it, because it will keep you awake, and it will stop, because I got really drunk really quickly, and he was like, it will stop you getting, it will sober you up a bit, and I was like, all right, so straight away I tried it, hated the feeling. So that's kind of like the first introduction in that house. That's insane. It's, that's an insane story. But the question is, was Freddie with the group of guys outside of heaven? Was he one of them? Yeah, yeah he was one of them, yeah. Did you notice? You were like, holy shit, it's Freddie Mercury? Was that a thing? Uh, there was a group of guys. I didn't notice. It wasn't until I was inside. you got to remember, I, I was too young to be a Queen fan. Queen was just like, whatever. You know, I was into fucking Mark Armand and shit like that at that point. You know, and I was more... <laughs> more intrigued with meeting Mark than any of those other guys. And so Freddie for me was kind of like, it wasn't on my radar as such as like, oh my God, it's Freddie Mercury. And it wasn't until I got back to the house and I kind of, well, then I was in awe because of like, the house was amazing. But you know, it was just like the energy of that lot, them being high and then being drunk. That was what I was drawn to. I wasn't drawn to any other factor. It could have been, I could have been, you know, with, with other <laughs> and not giving a shit who they were. It was just the energy that I was drawn to. It's always been the same. I'm drawn to that energy. Totally. And it's totally the the ultimate manifestation of I have arrived. You're doing coke for the first time as a teenager at Freddie Mercury's house. It must have lit up every fucking bulb in your brain. A hundred percent. And, you know, but I remember leaving up there the, the next afternoon and I was thinking, oh, I'm never doing that again. And And I kind of... Didn't do it for a while. I didn't do cocaine again until about, I'd say about a year later, when I blagged my way <laughs> into the world of, like, uh, these guys called Steve Strange and Rusty Egan, they were, like, the biggest club promoters. They started the Blitz Kids. They were opening a new nightclub in London called, at the Lyceum, which is the Lyceum, if you ever come to London, it's where the Lion King is. Like, this is the size of the theatre. The Lion King's on on there. And they were starting a new Saturday night, and I, I went up to them. I was like, listen, I'm opening a night the same night as you. And I, I was 16, you know. It was like anyone else would have said, fuck off. Do you get what I mean? But because I was so in their faces about it, and I caused such a, a stir, London at this point was a really small place. It wasn't like... It is today where you've got so many places you can go out clubbing or hanging out in bars. We had one place, and that was called the West End, which was Soho. And if you made it in Soho a name for yourself, you, everyone knew who you were. So by 16, 17, I'd already got that name because uh, of my mouth. So I've gone to them, and I said, oh, yeah, you need to give me a job. So they said, well, why don't you do the door? <laughs> so I was the door picker. 
at this club and each week I would slag off the music and say, oh, the music's awful, the rubbish. And then one week he said, oh, why don't you, if you think you can do better, why don't you do it? So the next week off I trotted with four records. But it was at that point my drinking had got so severe again that I would go into blackout and not remember anything, end up in really bad situations. And a friend of mine at that time said, his name was Paul, he said to me, you need to, you need to start doing coke because it will level out the amount of alcohol you're doing. And I was like, what do you mean it level? He said, well, you'll be able to drink longer. And I was like, fuck, why did I never think of that before? Anything that could allow me to drink longer was like a win-win situation. So that week I tried cocaine, hated the feeling, hated the paranoia that I got straight away. A lot of people don't get that I got it straight away, the paranoia, the intense feeling of like, oh, you know, my skin's calling which is a good sign to say not to do it again. Do you know yes. what I mean? It's kind of like, because, you know, as an addict and like yourself, we suffer with, we have this thing, most people have common sense. We have uncommon sense. Uncommon sense is like, okay, that's really, really bad. That tastes really bad. I'll have six portion. <laughs> you know, oh, that's made me really ill. Let me go back to that restaurant again tomorrow. You know, because maybe it'll be different this time. That's uncommon sense. The next week I start buying it. And I could jump forward like 28 years because that was it. That was like the straight away I was so hooked and lined and sinkered into it, into that world. And uh, that continued that way, you know, for a long time. I I totally get it. It's the funny thing is you would drink so hard that you needed the Coke as energy, not to mention you worked at night. When I did Coke for the first couple times, uh, it made me incredibly uncomfortable because I think I'm naturally up. And and I remember I wound up becoming, you know, addicted to heroin and downers and whatever. And uh, I moved out to Los Angeles to get clean, you know. And when I moved out there, my best I moved in with my best friend who had just gotten hooked on crystal meth. And I knew yeah. that I was going to do the crystal just so I could find my way back to the dope. You know, I what because it like I only like the ups if I can if I could mix it so intensely with the downs that I barely felt it. And it's like, that's what the, the Coke did for you with the alcohol, basically. 100%. And then, of course, you know, that no longer works. So then it would be Coke and Rohypnol, Diazepam, Tamazepam, Elipam. You know, so I would always, <laughs> I would ro- literally, I would roller coaster that. And, you know, that was kind of how I got through life. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't long before... You know, those drugs weren't working. And, of course, you know, straight after working at the the limelight and playing the four records, suddenly this new career took off so instantaneously. Within a a month, I had my own new night on a a Tuesday in London. Uh, I was flying every weekend to New York to play at the Palladium for Steve Rebell. I had met – suddenly Andy came to – Andy Royal come to London. Suddenly he invited me to New York. That was the whole ball going with that boy. George, my best friend, was the biggest star on the planet. He was living in New York. So suddenly, you know, off we went to New York. And, you know, cocaine was at a real big grip still then. Uh, And, you know, I was living that life. I was fucking, you know, George would say to me one day, oh, do you want to go to New York tomorrow? Let's get Concord. And off we'd trot on Concord. Do you get what I mean? It was kind of insane times. Well, again, it's like that path just lit up for you, though. It's like it was a direct path from four records to everything, right? It was direct, you know, and that that doesn't happen very often. And it really was, I mean, I get a sense that you understand music and you love music, but what you really understand is people. 
and, and how to get yeah. over and how to make people feel comfortable and like you and and then right place, right time, right thing said. Right place, right time, right thing said. Spinning the right record. And it's so beautiful. I love that. Uh, how did you become so close with uh, Boy George? I've always known George since I, started. I met George at 15 in the King's Road. He was one of those people that walked up and down King's Road. And this is before he was in the batting, before he was in Culture Club. And he came in one day and I was like, who does your hair? And he had to, it was just, he had to just cut the dreadlocks. And he was like, why? And I said, because they're, they're not dreadlocks, they're shit locks. And that was kind of just like, that was it. That was, suddenly, that was our friendship. And his flatmate was my best friend. And that's it. We all just suddenly become, that, that, that's where the family began, you know. And so many great people at that point would always come into King's Road. So every designer, you know, King's Road was like really where fashion grew where it's where it is today because at that point in time we had Vivian with World's End which was Vivian Westwood you had Punk you had New Romantic everything all of those people grew into the people that are kind of ruling fashion right now you know they all come they all stem from that era so yeah it was a very blessed time and you know the drugs kind of took a really bad turn in London everyone started doing smack I kind of Never went near that. I used to always like have morals when it came to smack. I'd be like, I don't do smack. I do like cocaine. You know, it was a badge of honor for me. But you know, I'd still at like 8 a.m. in the morning be booting opium off of Kit Kat wrappers. You know, because but it was never, I'd never done heroin. But I'd, still, I'd do opium. You know, those were my morals. You were too high class for heroin. You were too high for scag. You too high end for scag. I'll put the opium up my butt instead. Um, that's amazing. Amazing. You know, I never, I never came across opium. Talk about how, uh, how did the scene, because obviously you weren't the only person in that scene to fall victim to this thing. Well, I mean, I think at those point in time, you know, the nightclubs that were opening kind of really become really druggy. You know, we had the limelight, which they had in New York as well. Pete Gation opened one in London and it had a VIP room. And, you know, with VIP goes cocaine, you know, and it was kind of like become a place, a really debauched place. And the whole club scene really suddenly got into smack. Everybody was on heroin. It was like, it was like the in drug. And for me, it was like, I'm not doing downers. I'd like to be up, you know, because cocaine kind of had a reverse thing with me. It would quieten me down. If I didn't have cocaine, it was a fucking nightmare. The gay DHD took over and it was just like I was on another planet. But, you know, we, cocaine kind of suppressed who I was. It kind of made me go into myself a little bit. Not a lot at the beginning. Over the course of years, it got a lot worse. But at that point in time, heroin was like a real grip in London. And kind of that got the, the, the scene by the boards. And then I moved to New York for a year with everyone. And... They all kind of were still doing their snacky thing while I was doing cocaine. I was like always the snow queen to their, like, you know, their gouging. I could, I'd sit with them all, like, wired while they were all gouging out, waiting for them to completely gouge out and then nick their drugs. But, you know, that's kind of like the way it was. Would you snort it? Would you smoke it? Would you shoot it? What was the primary I always, form? For me, I always snorted cocaine uh, until I only had one nostril left, which I can still... Can't breathe out of this right nostril to this day. But, you know, uh, I would always snort it. And then, when that was never enough, then the smoking came. Then I started freebasing coke. The more I bought, the more I freebased. Then that was never enough high. 
then it would have to be like a purer form. And then I would go on to, if you couldn't get that, but, you know, if we had a shortage of that in London, straight on the crack. When crack came to London, I was all over that. Do you know what I mean? But still, you know, never told anyone I was doing crack because I didn't want them to think badly of me. I just thought they want, I wanted them all to know that I had a coke problem, but not a crackhead. No, no. How dare they? I mean, I frowned on I frowned on alcoholics, smackheads, and, and crackheads. We have an idea for ourselves, regardless of what we actually are. You yeah, know, hundred percent, man, hundred percent. One of my favorite expressions I've heard from you in my research is when you were spinning, you would say, "No K, no play." <laughs> is this true? Yeah. How was ketamine in in the story? The ketamine came in a lot later. So, you know, I was doing this club called Trade, which is like a legendary gay club in London. It was like the first 24-hour nightclub. And I would, I was resident, and I literally would turn the music off and I would say over the microphone, no K, no play. And people would bring ketamine and give me bumps and I would start playing again. Okay, and people would find, like, literally... Uh, people would like freak out and bring me ketamine and I'd start playing again. So it kind of become a legendary thing. And it was really weird because like about three years ago, I started doing, working for Donatella Versace and uh, they flew me over to her house and I was in her living room. And uh, I was, de- uh, first of all, she came in and she was like, oh my God, what an honor to have you here. And I was like, are you fucking mental? It's the other way around. And she was like, no, no. And she'd done her research and I was DJing and she came over and she was like, she was with Kendall Jenner, and she came out. She's like, "Me and Kendall love your Instagram." And I was like, "Oh, that's mad!" And she went, "What do you mean it's mad? No K, no play." And high fived me and walked off. And it was one of those moments where you just think, "Did that just happen?" Like Donatella Versace just said, "No K, no play," and walked off. You know, it's kind of one of those stories that's always stuck with me because it was like, but you know, people, I glorified what I did. If whatever I did. I made it into a business in the sense of I would be a, the biggest car crash, but every interview I ever gave, I would always say, you know, I, I, I chemical scaffolding keeps me alive, you know, shit like that. I kind of, you know, I had so far gone with it, as I said before, with the sex, that it becomes our world. Do you think Donatella Versace ever did ketamine? I think Donatella Versace, you need to ask her that question yourself. Do you think do you think she was talking about Kendall Jenner when she said no K, no play, like no K as in no no Kendall? <laughs> no, I think she no. was definitely talking about ketamine. I would turn the music off all the time until I got what I wanted everywhere. It kind of become like a, a trait. You know, and like literally I I had this theory that I worked best when I'd been awake for three days. <laughs> I couldn't even see, let alone fucking stand up or play records. But in my mind, my head would tell me, my addiction would tell me, you're at your best. You're at your best when you, when the middle of the records are turning into fucking mushrooms and flowers from my tripping. It was insane. Were you tripping also at that point? Yeah, always. You know, I would take so many drugs uh, within like Rohimmel and Tamazepan and cocaine that I, my, my, my mind couldn't fathom it. So I'd always be tripping. I never ever took acid, or I did loads of times, but I never took acid to trip. You know, I didn't need to. I kind of just went off on these fucking mental trips. Because my brain, by three days of dehydration, cocaine abuse, uh, uppers and downers, and alcohol, the mind does really fucking strange things. Definitely, definitely. I, I, I had a period in my in my using where I didn't know about it, but they had stopped putting heroin in the heroin, 
and somehow they changed it for ketamine and I didn't know about it and I would fall off the table or I'd fall off the couch into a somersault and I'm not a flexible person and I would wake up on my back or even worse, I would sleepwalk and I would wake up outside of my apartment and I would slam the door, wake up and it was from the ketamine and I'd have to call my father and be like, can you get me the keys to my apartment because... I don't know what happened. How was was there ever like a weird ketamine moment like that for you? Oh, loads of them. You know, I moved a dealer into my house. I had this house in uh, South London, the family home. In fact, they moved out and they let me move in there because uh, they moved to, to a bigger house. And I was, I, I kind of like they felt sorry for me, so I moved this dealer into one room, and he was a coke dealer at the time. You know, as you do, you move like all the dealers in, so you don't have to go out. And yeah. uh, well, I think they call it a crack house, <laughs> but not me. It's like, you know, it's still my house. <clears throat> so I moved this dealer in, and he uh, he's, he sold cocaine uh, with, with orange stickers on his bags. And uh, there was a really big cocaine shortage, and I'd gone away. I was in, I think I was in Hong Kong, and I'd come back from Hong Kong after burning, setting fire to the hotel room. And I, I was in the hospital for three days, and I came back, and I was in such a state. Uh, I remember going into his room and just helping myself to all the bags. And I used to think his cocaine was really shit. You know, it wasn't the best cocaine. So I, I got three bags and I poured it all onto the table and did like a really big line and I did it. And I thought, that's not cocaine. It was fucking ketamine. Yeah. And of course, then, you know, I had to work and I was fucked, you know. And I, there were so many of those stories, you know, like being so K'd out of my nut. And having to deal with people, like, you know, and, like, really big gigs and do loads and loads of ketamine before, you know, my uncommon sense would be like, I've seen ketamine, that will even, like, stop you from gurning. And then do too much ketamine and end up in this, like, big K-hole 10 minutes before DJing for Madonna or something. You know, it, it kind of was the way it was. It was insane. The other thing that I love about your story is your your brashness was another key to your career. Like the story about Stevie Wonder showing up at the gig and wanting the record. I mean, like, is, do, do you think it was your attitude that really propelled you forward as well? I kind of think it was just, you know, I think it was my Auntie Jenny. It was that Auntie Jenny feeling of like, you know, fuck off. Do you know what I mean? And I've always, I was always that way, as I say. I was, I've kind of always been like, you know what? If it, I know, like, you know, I... I really could judge a character and I always think, you know what, well, I ain't got time for your shit. And I kind of just like, you know, they'd come over that night three times and ask me for the, the track. And it was Sweet Pussy Pauline. I remember it to this day, this track. And, uh, and there's this, like, it was one of those New York bitch tracks. And I was playing it and the, the guy comes over, he's like, oh, can we buy this record off you? And I was like, no. And then another one came and then they brought Stevie and I was like, fuck off, you're not buying it. And they were like, I'm Stevie Wonder. This is Stevie Wonder. I know. I can see. And it's like, and I literally know. And he, Stevie, started laughing. I gave him the record in the end. But you know, it's just like, it was just like those moments because you know, for me, I'd grown up around some of the biggest stars there were on the planet. So I was never fathomed by meeting someone else. I was never fathomed by, oh my god, this is so and so. This is you know. For me, it was kind of like, all right, yeah, fine. Right, like Boy George had made it big by the time he was how old? 20, 21? Yeah, George was like, well, at that point, you know, on all sides of the, of the planet, he was like a, a huge, huge star. You know, and he, he was tight with him. 
right? Yeah. You were tight with of course, so Stevie. But you know, you know, it was that circle of friends. You know, George, and then there was George Michael. You know, at this point in time in London, everyone knew each other and all come from the same place. So we all went to the same clubs. We all hung out with the same group of friends. Some snided off with George, boy George, and some snided off with George Michael. You weren't allowed to be in, the, in both teams at once at that time. You know, um, so yeah, I kind of, you know, as I say, flying on Concord at 18, 17, 18, kind of took the perspective of superstars away from you. You know, I'd been to gigs with, I'd met Stevie Wonder with George once when George was doing a gig and uh, in New York and I'd gone with that and met them there. George did a duet with Stevie. And it kind of just, all of those people, you know, they were superstars, but at the same time, in my head, I was the biggest star. Do you get what I mean? That's kind of, yeah. you know, that mental, insane thinking. But it carried you through to know what to do in all these situations, which is what moved you forward. A hundred percent, because you know what? I wasn't, I was never arse-licking anyone. I kind of, you know, you either wanted me for what I did or you wanted me to be a friend because of the way I was. It wasn't what I can do for you. That, that was the difference. Do you get what I mean? I kind of always, one thing about me, unless you've got something in your pocket that I want, I would always be real. But if you've got three grams of coke in your pocket, I'd be the fakest bitch that ever walked the earth. Do you get what I mean? And I would manipulate you to get you those three grams of coke. Then I'd fuck you off. But, you know, that was the way it was. You know, I, addiction really, really taught me how to be a survivor. Right. Or the manipulate. I mean, it's manipulation, but it's also, it's how to get these gigs. It's how to be, 100%. you know, this DJ. Those gigs come because of, like, you know, the circle I was in and what I was doing. And it wasn't very long before anybody that came to London, whether it be Prince, Madonna, anyone, they all had me playing for them. They all had me working for them. You know, because of the circle that I was in and because I'd met, I, you know, by that point I'd got to that pinnacle point of everybody has to have Fat Tony, you know. And so, and of course, you know, being at that young of age, like being 18, 19, 21, the ego's rife, man. Do you know what I mean? And it kind of like, I was always about the party. I was always about having fun. Uh, and I was, a, you know, I was fun to be with. It didn't get dark for a lot later. You know, at those points in time, you came to London, you hung out with me. You had the best time because... We, it went on fucking ever. What were you spinning? What were you spinning that drew Madonna and Prince? Or was it just the fucking joie de vivre? No, I, I think, you know, the music I've always had, music was, as I always say, and I've, I've said it all in every interview, that for me the best drug I've ever had in my life is, is music. And, it, you know, so I... It wasn't until much later that it became a way and means to get more of drugs, and that was all it was. But up in that point, I was playing music that made people dance. I have this ability to read a room. I have ability to read the energy in a room. So if I've played a record six times that night, it's been at every moment it's meant to have been played. Do you know what I'm saying to you? That's what a DJ does. You know, it's not about, oh, I've already played that. I will play a track if I think that moment in time needs that track. That crowd need to hear that. They, and they always, you know, and it's never ever fallen flat on its face because that's my job to read that energy. And I kind of think, uh, I was, you know, people picked up on that energy and they wanted that energy. 
that's the gig and that's what drew these people to you then. It, it's it's awesome. I, I love that. I love that Prince comes in and requests a song and you're like, fuck off. You know, that he's like, nah, you got to play my party. <laughs> and then he, he came over again and I was like, uh, they were like, you just told Prince to fuck off. And I said, yeah, and I'll tell him to fuck off again. And then they came over with the old money trick. And they, had, they gave me a hundred pounds and I was took a hundred pounds. And then they came over an hour later and said, we paid you a hundred pounds to pay the track. I said, no, you gave me a hundred pounds. You didn't tell me to play the track. And then he started, and then Prince came over and started laughing. He said, I really like your technique. And I was like, I like yours too. And that was it. And then I played the track, Do you know, and that was it. And then every time he came to London, it was always, they'd always get me to do it. So it was great. I loved it when Prince came to London because he, he would do like, eight or nine, ten sell-out gigs, and I would do eight or nine, ten sell-out parties afterwards because he always had a party after every It would be 50 to 100 people. He would he would jam with his band and on his own, and I would DJ before and after. That was my gig, and I knew what he loved. I knew how to work it. I knew exactly, you know, he knew what he was getting. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, were you out of control at that point with with substances or no? I I think that at that point in time, it wasn't really out of control. There, it was it was it was partying, and my partying was sometimes would go on for days. But when it came to work situations, just at that point in time, I would think, oh, I can't do that gig until I got to get coke. So I'd go off to the dealer that I knew smoked smoked it as well and I'd sit in his house three hours before the gig and then leave ten minutes before the gig and get there so wired that I would be so paranoid but I still was pulling it off I was functioning I was yeah I was still functioning very very well at that point and uh, and when did the functioning start to dip like when did you know when do you remember it was like holy shit I'm not functioning so well anymore so many situations you know like I got this um, like uh, I'd be in, uh, like in dealers' houses and think, oh, shit, I've got to go to the airport in an hour. And I'd think, oh, fuck the airport, I'm not going. And I'd blow out the gigs. And then the next two days, I'd be apologising to my agent and saying, oh, look. And then suddenly those gigs weren't coming in anymore because, you know, the world's a small place when it comes to that. People were like, no, don't book him, he's unreliable. And that kind of was when I kind of thought, well, fuck them, I'm having a good time. And that's kind of when it started to seep in the... You know, there'd be really bad situations happening. I got in with the wrong kind of people. People would come around my house with guns, threatening me. Or, like, you know, I'd start seeing guys who had guns. And, you know, it kind of just was going down that spiral of friendship. And all the good people in my life were kind of going because they would be obstacles to my using. They would be the ones that were saying, look at the state of you. And no one could ever say that to me because if they said that to me, I'd fuck them up. So all the good people in my life were going and they were being replaced by really good people. So my head was telling me. But, you know, suddenly I was hanging out with fucking gangsters and football hooligans and suddenly new drugs were coming to London like MDMA and ecstasy. And I would ride that one and then ride the next. And then, you know, that was always the case. And I kind of just think, you know, the, I started to get ill. I started to get really ill from stuff and started, like, you know, my my mental health was deteriorating really fast. And then I kind of, I think the biggest turning point was I got a record deal. I lost my boyfriend, my partner at the time, to, to AIDS. He died. I, I kind of, 
used his morphine that night after he died. I kind of took all the drugs out of the house, which is all I was really waiting for, which is really, you know, the kind of mental state. And I went out on a five-day bender, and that kind of was like the worst, lowest point I thought of my life at that point. I thought, you got, you can't do this anymore. And then I kind of picked myself up and, and decided I was going to do make records. And I, and I, I um, opened another club that opened all night. And uh, I basically, you know, started to thinking that I was doing better because I was earning better money. And then I got this record deal, got a new house. And it wasn't... I had the house for about nine months. <laughs> and then... Of course, didn't pay any fucking thing for the house, you know. All the, 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 you know, they kind of got like, I had the house taken off me about a year after a year. And that was kind of like the first really real turning point of like, okay, I'm homeless. But I've got lots of friends who will put me up. Right. And you were supposed to be super rich and super famous with the house, with the record company. And within nine months, you lose it. I, I experienced something on a much smaller scope, but that's just classic drug addict shit. You oh, know what I mean? And they'd come around my house and plead with me to pay them. Like the, the, the guys were going, look, you're going to lose this house. And I'd be like, I don't care. I'll get a new one. And that was my mentality. And I, and I remember leaving that house the night that I left that house. Uh, which was the dream house. It was called The Cottage on Queen Square. It was the best address in the world. And, uh, you know, and it was like such an incredible little, like, house. You went through a house and you went out the back of another house and it was in the end of the garden, this, like, cottage. It was insane, in the middle of central London. And um, I left that house with a mirror, the mirror that I used to rack up lines on and left everything else, left it. And they were like, you're not going to get your stuff. And I was like, fuck it. We're getting more stuff. Who cares? And that was it. I remember giving the washing machine and tumble dryer to a friend. I said, just take them. And, uh, you know, the rest was because everything, I lived in this world of like fast, fast life where I could get everything again. And, and I had nowhere to go. And I remember being at a hotel and my friend ringing me and saying, I've got a flat in East London you can have. And there we go again. Moved in there in exactly the same situation scenario and that kind of was always my scenario stay until you get thrown out do you think you know? i mean i i heard i heard you talk a little bit about this before and you talk about you not being materialistic um and i was the same way do you think it was more that you were so i mean you were so caught up in the drugs but you were also caught up in the experience that who cares about what you have because this is life you know well also if i had anything that was worth anything i would have given it to someone for drugs anyway so there was no point in getting anything you know because it was going down the same avenue whether it be on my wrist you know my grandfather died and he left me uh, a rolex uh, I, I that went to a pawn shop for 80 quid and I never got it out. He left me a diamond this big and I, I remember pawning it for a thousand pounds and I think I could do a gig at the weekend and pay it back, get it back out. Never got it out because he never, and the thought of going back there and giving them the money instead of the dealer the money didn't ever work. Uncommon sense never took me that way. Do you know what I mean? So losing stuff kind of meant nothing. It meant nothing, you know. Because it was like, I'm going to die soon anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, I'm not, I'm not going to have anything to leave anyone because I might as well spend it all now. You know, the new house was an incredible, you know, moment of, of getting that and getting, okay, I own this house. I own a fucking house. You know, and then just within a year, 
didn't own fuck all apart from a mirror, you know. Um, and that was kind of, but you know what? I was always, throughout my using, always happiest when I didn't have the price of a packet of cigarettes because I knew I couldn't use that night. I knew I'd exhausted every avenue and, and I would be picking up cigarette butts on the floor and I knew I could go to sleep at that point. Do you know what I mean? And even when I was sleeping, I was on something, some form of drug. But, you know, uh, money and me were like real, you know, money was, it was dirty. I got paid for having sex when I was a 10-year-old. You know, that money that was given to me as a kid for having sex with men was was not a good place to be. No, I hear you. And uh, and the glimmer of not having drugs and getting some sleep was also probably the first, like, little bit of peace you saw. The, one of the, the dopiest things and, and just crazy off-the-hook things that I heard in my research was when you discovered meth, the, the story with your teeth. Like, I feel like oh my God, yeah. that must have been, like, the bottom of bottoms. I kind of think, you know... It was kind of a, you know, for me at that point, doing that, because I literally got, to, I met this new guy called Jason, who recently got, like, uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I, messaged, I spoke to him on Instagram, and he's doing really well in America, but, you know, he uh, he came to London, and this was the one, you know, it's always the one, everyone I met was always the one in my mind, and this one, he, he had this drug, and he was like, oh, this you try some Tina, and I was like, "No, I've heard about it." It's like you know, I don't need to do that, man. It's too, you know, someone like me does not need to be introduced to something like that. And one night I was out with him, we went back, and I was like, "Oh, go on then, let me smoke some," <laughs> as you do. And that was it. Eighteen months later, I had no teeth. I'd, I, uh, I'd literally had animals living in my gums, and I, you know, under my skin, and I would sit digging at my gums, I, and I would pulled my teeth rocking backwards and forwards and I pulled all my teeth out one by one with like bits of stick, pliers, screwdrivers, anything I could put in my mouth because my face was so numb from the drugs that I was taking uh, and my mouth would go septic. I'd, I'd mess mouth. And um, so there was never any, there was never any agonizing pain as such. I think the rest of the body was already in that amount of pain for me to really feel that what was going on in my mouth. I think the fact that I ached, I ached from head to toe. I weighed about eight stone at that point, which I went down to seven before the ending. And, you know, I had one tooth left in my head and kind of just still thought I looked amazing. You know, I would spray myself orange. <laughs> I'm sure you did look amazing. I'm sure you looked amazing. We had these 99 cent stores, you know, like I would go there and get a can of fake tan and spray myself bright orange and think, oh, look at the cheekbones. And I remember being one time, you know, when you're really faced with your reality, I think the biggest point was, the turning point was I was in a, in a post office and there were these crackhead girls in there, Scottish, all arguing and fighting. And I, I was like, shut up, you crackheads. Fucking, we're like queuing up. Have some respect, thinking that I was like I looked normal because I was wearing a nice coat that I'd been given, and they all turned around and were like, "Well, you, you're one of us. You're no better than us. Look at you. You're one of us. How dare you call us crackheads?" And I was like horrified. I was like, "How dare you?" And I remember being on my phone ringing my partner saying, "Bring the dogs to the post office. <laughs> I've just been called a crackhead, and I was going to be like, cause a big fire." 
You know, and it was kind of like, that's really resonated, always stuck with me, that her saying that to me, because it was so true. But I, in my mind, I didn't look like that. You know? I couldn't look, to, when I spoke to anyone, I put my hand in front of my mouth. I didn't look at anyone in the eyes for about four years towards the end. I DJ, and, you know, DJing was a way of means to get more money to get, to get drugs, and that was it. That was the triangle, and, you know, I never, I never looked at a dance floor, and I kind of lost the passion for music because I'd lost the passion to live. And all I ever thought about at that point in time was dying. I, all I ever thought about was, I, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, uh, and of course, the funeral was the, the only thing to look forward to because it was, it was like I was going to do the guest list, and I didn't want that person there and this person, and you know, and I planned the music to what I was going to be, you know, carried into, Womack and Womack, footsteps on the dance floor, teardrops. Then I was going to be burned to Mary J. Blige, no more drama, which is the kind of words that album saved my, saved my, was kind of the only thing that kind of made me live because I'd listen to it every day on loop. I totally remember when No More Drama came out. I was deep, deep, deep on heroin. And I really could just relate to this song but I, I stayed getting high for years and years. But that song, I remember, it like it just played into my head in this... Uh, yeah. Like, you knew she was going through something. I didn't know exactly what she was going I through. It was that energy, yet again. It's, you know, the words of the song meant one thing, but it was the actual energy of that song, uh, which, you know, I related to everything, every fucking word. You know, this is about me. Of course it was about me. You know, it was about me and a lot of other fucking people that were going through trauma. Uh, and, you know, and it's kind of like the, one of the best things about recovery was getting to work with her like three or four times. And the first time I got introduced to her, I told her that story and she started to cry. And I was like, and she was like, that, that person you just described is not you. The person that's in front of me telling me this story is you. This is who you're meant to be. And, she, you know, it blew me away and it was kind of just like I just thought, Okay, this is recovery. This is recovery. Being able to tell that story, being alive and being in the moment and not being... Because if that had happened 20 years prior or 10 years prior, while I was using, I wouldn't have even spoken to her. I'd have been like, do you know what I mean? Or if it had happened towards the end, I wouldn't have been able to face her because I couldn't face anyone, because I couldn't face myself. So it kind of, you know, it's really odd how... God only gives you things that you can cope with at the right time within recovery. Certain things happen in a sequence, in an order, and they're not con- they're not con- you know they're not coincidences. They're that they happen in that order for a reason. And I'm a firm believer of that. I, well, you know, I, I've lived it, so I, to live it, you you have to believe it. Do you get what I'm saying? And I kind of just there's been so many strange incidences since putting down drink and drugs that kind of make me believe in this shit. Well, Mary J is like, you know, being a New Yorker, you know, Mary J Blige is like, holy shit. You know, like nobody is like Mary J Blige. It's a whole other thing. No, no one. Um, She's incredible. It's, it's, so that's insane. At the end, when you have one tooth in your head and you're spraying yourself orange, are you working as much? Do people still want DJ Fat Tony or what's going yes. on? Yes. Or what's, uh, of course, of course I was. I was still working. I had a residency on a Friday and a residency on a Sunday that paid loads of money, and I still run a nightclub on my own on a Saturday night and on a Sunday morning. So 
that Tony was still a big deal. It always was, you know. And it was that was one of the problems about getting clean because I just thought, how the fuck do you go from this car crash into being clean? And you can't DJ, you can't do what you're doing now. No one's going to respect you. <laughs> no one respected me then, but you know, it was still the name. I was still hanging in there by a thread uh, in all areas, of, and that's with life and with career. But you know, people were still paying for it, paying for that experience because that's what it was. It was a fucking experience. You know, right. me DJing and like telling people to fuck off and throwing glasses at people and all of that shit and chaos that went with that. Because the more chaos I caused, the less I had to DJ and the less people had to see what I looked like. Do you get what I'm saying? Sure. You were this character. It was an experience. No, I totally get it. Um, And so, like, it's hard to force a bottom in a situation like that where you're basically rewarded for bad behavior. There wasn't a bottom. The bottom had happened, I reckon the bottom had happened a good... 10 years before and you know and I, and I you know he, there's that saying you know that rock bottom has a basement fucking hell I've done I've done I've done the Euro tunnel you know with my rock bottom I would like literally could be in France within three minutes you know that's how quick that tunnel was you know I for me as I say that all I had was death that was it that was the next stop there was no like okay I'm gonna stop this now you know because I didn't know how. I didn't know how. And then what happened was one night, I was in, the, in one, the Friday night club, which was called The Cross, rocking backwards and forwards. And my partner at, at that time came in, and we, but for years we'd been arguing, and he'd go to places that I worked and told him, you need to ban him, He's you're going to find him dead on your floor. And I'd be like, you need to bar him, he's trying to ruin our fun, you know. And all that, that, at that point in time, he and the other friends were trying to save my life, and I just got rid of them all. And that night he came in, and I thought, oh, what's he doing here? He's barred from here, you know. And he came in the back room, and instead of, like, and I sat there and I thought, oh, my God, I can't deal with this time. And instead of the usual ruckus that went on, he came up and put his hand on my shoulder and I looked at him and it was as simple as this. He just said, what happened to you? And it always makes me want to cry because it was that, that God-given moment, that moment that should never have happened at that point in time. He should never have been there and, he, and those words should never have come out of his mouth. And that was it. And I looked at him and it was like my life at... It was like smoking, hotboxing the worst fucking dope in the world and closing your eyes and the room rushing in. You know, that feeling of like, ooh. It was like that. It was like suddenly, and I just cried and I left that night. But it wasn't, you know, and I by the Monday and the Tuesday, I'd, I'd spoken to a, my GP and said, I need help, I can't go on. And we started the process and it was a fucking process. It didn't happen overnight. There was no... Right, I'm stopping this. Because, you know, how do you tell someone who's made a life out of being that car crash that it's over? Where do you go from there? No one's going to employ me clean. Fuck, what am I going to do? You know, I've been, like, making plans for the funeral. So it was that process of, like, trying to let go of being the car crash that was Fat Tony and trying to be... Alive. It wasn't about Fat Tony anymore. It's about living, living as a, as as, and as 
without the name, without anybody, but just it was a, a, trying to learn how to walk again, trying to learn how to breathe, trying to learn how not to lie, trying to learn how to hide the fact of my insecurities because I had nothing, no longer had anything to go through, hide behind. So over the course of three or four months, I started going to drug dropping centres. I still couldn't do it. I still couldn't get clean. I, I would give up alcohol for a weekend uh, and be so wired. Then I would give up cocaine and everything else that was on and be so drunk that I'd end up in police cells. And none of it was ever working. So the only way forward for me was to go to rehab. And off I went to rehab for six months, for half the year I went for. And, uh, and in that time, I kind of just... I fought it all the way. I mean, the first two months. Every Friday, I'm out the door. You don't know what it's like to be gay. You don't know what it's like. Oh, like, they, like really? You know, any excuse that I had, you know. Um, and then something, something clicked one day. It just clicked in my head. and just thought, you know what? Who are you fighting? What are you fighting? Let it go. And, you know, I, it was like that, that, that spiritual awakening that I had from the hand on the shoulder, because that really was the first spiritual awakening, to get that realisation in treatment that I can't do that anymore, this isn't my life. And then I remember the last day of being in treatment and they said to me, you can't go back, you can't go back to London and you, you need to stay in Bournemouth and you can't go back to DJing and you can't go back to that relationship. And I remember literally saying at that point, I'm not going back to anything. I'm going forward to London. I'm going forward to my career and I'm going forward to my life. And that was the way it's been ever since. A kind of, you know, recovery is an incredible thing. And a 12-step program, which I'm very blessed to be in, has saved my life. And I work it. But you know what? Life on life's terms is... is, is it could be so cruel. It could be so cruel. We don't have that, oh, I'm going to go down, the, I've had a really terrible day, I'm going to go and have a drink down the pub, or I'm going to act out on this, or I'm going to have that. We don't have that. What we have is a place that we can go and talk about that stuff. We have the therapeutic value of you and I, one addict talking to another, and all of that other stuff. But you know what? Addiction, you know, I, I know, and I can say a lot of people always tell me off the same this, but I know hand on heart today, I'm not going to have a drink or a drug in my life. I wouldn't make my life, I, my life is incredible. But as I always share now, I don't need drink or drugs to fuck up my life. I do a really good, really good job of it myself. You know, addiction comes in so many shapes and so many different forms. And when you least expect it, it will come and bite, your, bite you by the bollocks. And... You know, I've learned that over 13 and a half years that I have to be vigilant around everything. Vigilant. The minute I'm not vigilant is the minute that I'm fucked because something else will seep in. And also, the minute I get comfortable within a situation, it's the most dangerous place for me to be comfortable in. So if I'm with, I meet up with a group of guys in Soho for chat and they're all being bitchy, I will have to be the bitchiest. So I go, into, I go straight into flow and I come away from it feeling so worthless. It's, I use on it. I get high on it. I have a bar of chocolate. I have to have another six. You know, all of these simple things because it's all about changing the way I feel. And I, I'm in a relationship with my partner, David, who I've been with for, uh, for eight years. And, I've, you know, I've had my moments where I've been the biggest cunt in the world. And I know you Americans hate that word, but it's the only way to describe it. It's the only way to describe it. In recovery... 
because I don't work that program. And, you know, what happens is my program eventually kicks in and there, there's a thing that I have called a conscience that will kick in. I think, what are you doing? And that's not enough to stop me from doing it because by then I'm already in flow. It has to get to the point of pain yet again. As soon as the pain kicks in, that's it. Whoa, this needs to stop. Right. It's constant, Just, constant surrender. You know, you need to – I mean, I'm the same way and I get into the same problems if I'm not – constantly like dipping my pen back in the ink i forget everything and all of a sudden i'm off to the races and it's not on drugs it's on anger or envy or fear or eating or or sex or whatever um let me ask you this though like i I remember listening to you talk a little bit about the beginning of your recovery and um and how, how the struggle of that and like going to meetings and then using at the same time how what was that and really like, because I think that the, uh, the dopey so nation the pain, will benefit. Being in recovery and using is the most fucking painfulest place in the world. Because I'd, but at the beginning, I, uh, for the first three or four months, you know, I was white knuckling. I was, I, what I'd done was I'd changed dealers because <laughs> everyone went to the same dealer. You know, you go, in London, you've got a good coat dealer. Everyone goes to the same dealer because, you know, you're so proud of, no, I've got a new dealer. So all my friends were going to my dealer. So I stopped going to him and I found another dealer. So I told the old dealer, oh, you know what? I've got clean. I'm not doing drugs anymore. So he told all my other friends, I, uh, they'd say, have you seen Tony? And he'd be like, no, he's clean. And of course, that was my fucking manipulating thinking. Yes, this is the master plan. So for me, it was like I was going to meetings and I was still using. And I would sit in the corner of the meeting gurning. And I, because I had no teeth, well, apart from one at the front, which I would constantly be playing with, with my tongue, you know, so I would be gurning anyway and going to meetings and taking cocaine and, and thinking that I was ticking the boxes. Oh, everyone's going to think I'm clean. Because the, the scary part was letting go, the change. Uh, There's a part of me at this point wanting to live, but there's a part, stronger part of me that could not let go of the addiction. The addiction was too powerful. And... Um, so I would go to meetings and my partner, I'd go home and my boyfriend would say, you've been using? And I'd be like, no, I haven't. And he'd be like, yeah, you have. And I'd be like, so, you know, I don't care what you say, I haven't. And then I'd be like sitting there and he'd make spaghetti carbonara with bits of pancetta the size of fucking golf balls and make me eat it. And trying to eat spaghetti <laughs> carbonara with yeah. pancetta with no teeth, high it's the worst thing in the world, you know, and like, you know, and I was kidding no one, but I couldn't get it. I could not get it. And, you know, it went on like that and it would, I would go to meetings and I'd go to the toilet and I would drink in the toilet and go back in the meeting smelling a vodka and Jack Daniels and think that no one noticed and everyone knew, everyone knew. And then what happened was one Saturday night, I was in a meeting in, in Soho in a place called Frith Street Medical Center and there was this big black lady and I'd gone, uh, so I walked in and I thought, oh, fuck this shit. I'd stay 10 minutes and leave. And, of course, so I, when I went into meetings, I took everybody's inventory. It started off at their feet. I'd look around the room, look at everyone's shoes, thinking cheap shoes, cheap shoes. Then it would go to crutches. Then it would go to, to, to clothes and faces. And I'd already checked her shoes and her handbag. And I thought, she's got a fake handbag. This is like, you know, going to be awful. <laughs> I, took, I was really good at taking everyone's inventory apart from my own. And she opened her mouth and that was it. She told me what she She told me everything about myself I had ever heard came out of her mouth. 
Her story was so, it was me. It was me. It was like, that was it. And I remember leaving that meeting and being on the railings and crying outside thinking, I can't do this anymore. I've been kidding myself yet again, still using and, and still doing it. I need to I need to go. I need to go away. And then that was kind of like when I decided make the decision that I needed to go to rehab. And I kind of, you know, I could have gone to so many different people and asked them for the money for it. Not that probably any of them would have believed it or given me it at that point. But I kind of went down the government route and earned it myself. I kind of did what was right. I turned up for meetings. I turned up for psychiatric unit meetings. And, you know, they put me under a, psychi- a psychiatrist. And I was like, why do I need a psychiatrist? You know, I'm not, I'm not mental, rocking backwards and forwards, like, you know, in a chair. And but, uh, and I remember being with a psychiatrist and he said to me, have you ever self-harmed? And I was like, no, why would I self-harm? And my partner looked at me and went, you pulled all your teeth out. And I was like, but I, and I remember saying, that's not self-harming because I normalised it. Everything I did, I normalised. It becomes so normal. And it was like, you know... And, and it was that was like, it was a really, really going to meet new people in recovery and trying to be in recovery while using is a very, very lonely place. A very, very lonely place. Because I wouldn't let anyone in. I never let anyone see me. And it wasn't until I come out of rehab that I really, really grasped the idea of going to a 12-step, 12-step fellowship. Because before that, the word God, I remember being in like, with my key workers and my psychiatrists and, and all of these meetings that I had to have to, to get into treatment, saying, I won't go to meetings because they all use the word God and I'm not religious. And But, you know, I was, I'd was i pray when the fucking dealer was 20 minutes late. I'd pray for him to give me tick. I'd be on the street corner in the rain, playing, please, God, let him give me tick. Please let him give me credit. Let me, I know I already owe him £100. Please let me have this. I, I, I'll do anything, God, promise you know, and I would do that or I'd get caught in a situation I would pray about that or in a police cell. But I didn't believe in God, you know. And I still, you know, it's that, as I say, it's it's been the the journey of, of happenings in my life throughout recovery that don't happen by coincidence. They happen for a reason and it's insane stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, today... I'm all about life. I love life. I love living. And I just, you know, although I kind of like, my past doesn't define who I am really to a certain extent anymore. But I talk about my fucking past nonstop because I put it out there. And because by putting it out there, it helps so many other people. I think it's a really important thing because, you know, in a lot of the traditions of 12-step programs, you know, in their traditions, it says we do not do press or TV or... Uh, you know, they like to, people like, you know, the old school AAers and the old school NAs all like to live under a stone. I'm not one of those people. I've spent my life under a stone. I'm no, going to get it. Yeah, I like, I, today I'd rather throw the stone at you and tell you exactly how to get clean. You know, and a lot of people don't like that, but you know what? I don't give a fuck. Like, Aunt no. Jen, you're still Aunt Jenny at heart. You're throwing, you're throwing rocks at people to I get them have, clean instead of bottles when you're wasted. Let me ask you this, because like when I came in, I had no God, um, but I needed it. You know what I'm saying? And I learned real quick that if I really wanted to do it, I'm going to have to figure it out. 
um, and I'm going to have to just take the suggestion. And, uh, and I did. And, uh, and the thing that got me was my first, well, my second sponsor, he would always share that his God was G-O-D, a gift of desperation, which I hear you talk about. Uh, how did you find your higher power? For me, I, uh, I found it very quickly because, you know, there've been situations in my life where I've been on life support machines and I've been like, my family had been called in to give me the last rites in the hospital and I'd come round. I had so many illnesses that I survived. You know, so coming to believe in a power greater than myself was really easy because I, I shouldn't have been on this planet. I did everything in my power to kill myself on a daily basis. And I was still here. I was still here. And then, you know, a situation happened at a year clean that rocked my world. I ended up in a prison cell accused of something that didn't happen. And I was then put down my house, my family house with my mum and dad. And bearing in mind, I'd hated my dad all my life because of the alcoholic he was when I was a kid. And I never, ever kind of gave him credit for anything. And uh, he'd say to me things like, oh, you deserve everything you've got. And I was like, oh, my God, how dare you say that to me? You know, my own father. And I would turn it all into, because I was a victim. I'd been a victim since 10, you know. And suddenly being put down there and, and being with my father, I found out that my father was 30 years sober. Amazing. And, you know, and that's higher power stuff, the fact that I was put down. And then my dad, a year, like, I won my court case, obviously. And then my dad, I got to 18 months clean and my dad passed away in front of me. And I would never have had that, never have ever had that if I hadn't gone through a really dark time. Something so wonderful and beautiful come out of it. I'm not in control of that stuff. That doesn't happen for a reason. This shit that we go through sometimes, we think, oh my God, if there's a God, how can I be feeling this way? Three months down the line, you work out the reason why you were made to feel that way because something so beautiful happens. And those don't have a reason. That's high power stuff. You know, I, I very vocal when it comes to praying. I, I, I hand things over because if it's in here, it becomes so big. But voicing it, praying and just handing it over to something greater than myself I don't have a problem with that. I do it in the back of taxis on the way to gigs. I do it on planes. You know, um, I, I truly believe that I have a higher power and a loving higher power because if I want something in life, I can get it. And that's not about being a new watch or a new car or whatever, any of that shit. I have, I've always wanted freedom and I have freedom today. I don't want a drink or a drug today. I don't do that. That's not Tony's thinking. That's not my That's not my wiring. My wiring is fucking drink everything you've got, everyone else has got, then I'll drink my own. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's my wiring. And something that I don't have to think about that on a daily basis anymore. And I have freedom, I have self-respect, I have love for myself, which means I can love someone else. That's not my doing. Right. No, I get it. How did you get past this, the sex addiction business? I still struggle with that. That's still life, but that's one that I can normalize on a daily basis. I can think, wake up in the morning and think, today's a really good day to do that. And then uh, on a good day, that, that my program kicks in and thinks, what are you on about? But, you know, there's these moments, you know, all it can take sometimes is someone to message you, hi, and, you know, your head goes with this shit because that's my wiring. And, you know, I have to work my program in every area of my life. 
Because yes. if I have sushi on a Monday and it's delicious, I'll have it on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. That's the way sushi is. You know, and that's how I, today I have to work it. And I have to remember that the love I have myself, I can love my partner. And, and in, in turn, he loves me back in that sense. And when I'm doing that stuff, I'm destroying everything I have. Do you know what I mean? Just as it would yes. be a gram of Coke. Because it would never be one gram of Coke. It would be an ounce. Do you know what I mean? And that's the same with any other addiction. And today I have to work that program and I have to hand that stuff over. And I have to be, you know, I, by working with other people, by doing this, talking about this stuff, that alleviates the pain and the pressure inside my head. And I, and I'm handing that out there. I'm putting that out there. And I kind of think the more honest I am with myself, I guess the more honest I can be with other people. And I kind of think, you know, it, it goes a long way towards having recovery because I can be, I, it doesn't matter if I'm 13 and a half years clean. It doesn't mean jack shit. It's about how, where I am in recovery. Totally. It's, it's, we, I mean, all the cliches are annoying, but they're all true. You know, we only, we only have today if we're doing it today. You know, I was, I, I got five years last month, but at the beginning of the month, at the beginning of the month, I was a train wreck. But now I, I've like, you know, I've re, I've, I've gotten back into this thing. I have my, I have my first sponsee now. He's 62 years old. Um, and it's, cool. it's cool, you know. Uh, I really, really appreciate your time, uh, and I really appreciate your story, and I think it's really powerful. And, um, you know, and I, I'm thanking you for coming on the show, man. It was awesome to have you. Thank you for having me. Seriously, thank you. You know, and I really hope that, Whoever listens to this or watches this gets something from it. Some kind of just a little bit of uh, identification can change your life. And then, wait a second. Uh, do I say Fat Tony? DJ Fat Tony? Tony? What do I DJ say? DJ Fat Tony. Tony's my name. Yes. But just DJ Fat Tony is who I am. That's my, my domain. DJ <laughs> Fat Tony has a podcast called The Recovery. And I bet you my audience would really be into it. He's had some amazing guests. He had Kelly Osborne. He had Russell Brand. Russell Brand ignores me. Why? Can you can you can you throw him a rock, throw a rock at him from me? He probably ignores you because he's probably jealous of you because he probably thinks that you're like a, you know, gonna outdo him. Russell's an amazing person. Russell is Russell. There's no other Russell in this world. Trust me. I've known Russell for a very long time and I've worked with him a lot. And uh, I love him. I love him because. He's another auntie. He's another auntie Jenny. Yes, he doesn't give a fuck. Send him a text on my behalf, please. And then your boy, your boy, boy George. He like I yeah. tweeted him all day. He followed me, but he doesn't return my messages. So tell him. Oh, he's, he's like that. He's doing. He's doing the recovery uh, on the next series. He's, he's one of the first ones on the recovery next series. Uh, yeah, we got him on that villa. Please send him my love and tell. And when you're through with him, maybe you could ask him to come on Dopey. I'd love that. I'm such a fan of his. And then I want to tell you something. I don't think you're going to care, but I want to share it with you. Um, do you know, um, well, first of all, when I was 21, or no, my 22nd birthday, I was hired to be a private eye at the Limelight in Manhattan to look for drugs oh, really? in that Peter yeah. Gation case. It was bananas. Peter, yeah. yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. I, was, I remember I was, when that case happened. That's crazy. Especially with my trajectory, that they had me looking for drugs with this alcoholic kid from Brazil, and we would just drink, and he would write fiction. 
for the case, for the, for the actual private eyes. It was like fucking bananas. It was easily one of the craziest jobs I've ever had, and uh, I look back on it with fine memories. But before we go, one of the currencies of Dopey is the Dopey story. Can you tell us one fucked up drug story before you go? Got too many of them. This is the problem. Going to New York, I feel like they flew me over. Peter Gation come and got me from the airport. I'd gone on Concord and got off the plane and Peter Gation was like, yeah, tonight you're going to be a big star. And I was like, oh, fuck off. Not Peter Gation, sorry. Paul, Steve Rubell. Steve Rubell. And, and they picked me up from the airport. Him and his, his, his other right-hand man, the other Steve, and they picked me up and they, Steve was in the back of the car with me and he was like, tonight you're going to be a big star in New York. Tomorrow no one's going to know your name. And I was like, fuck up, Liza Manelli. And I got there and I literally, I got to the club and all my friends were like, come on, you got to do this, you got to do MDMA, right? So we bought those little grand bottles of, 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 of ecstasy and we were doing the five dice and it was like, and I was like, it's not fucking working, it's not working. So we get to the club and I'm upstairs in the, in the, in the Mike Todd room DJing up there for my own party. They flown me in, big party for me. I bent down and I was like, it's not working. So I bent down and I just did, pour the whole bowl. And I stood back up like Cookie Monster. <laughs> and I literally, I left one record playing and I said to my friends, get me out of here. And they were like, well, I said, get me out of here. And they were like, but you, you've got a DJ, everyone's here, like fucking the place is back. I was like, I've got to leave. And I left the club and went round Avenue A. And back in those days, they were selling all shit on, bit, on bits of cardboard on the street, do you remember? At yeah, night, yeah. buying shit and like Dr. Shark. And the next morning... Uh, I get a phone call from Steve Rebell like the next afternoon and I was thinking, fucking hell. They, they, they wasted all that money on flying me over. And he was like, oh my God, man, how was last night for you? And I was like, I'm really sorry. He was like, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we took the fucking roof off the place. It's never, we've never had such a great party. And I wasn't even there. <laughs> I was out on Avenue A buying bags of shit, buying bags of used nails and shit. Like completely well, open up. But, you know, there's millions of those stories. But you know what? They were the good times. Yeah. No, I know. I, I get it. DJ Fat Tony, you are a gem and a joy. And, uh, and thank you so much for coming through. It means a lot to me. Big love, Dopey. Big love. So I really, really, really enjoyed having DJ Fat Tony on the old Dopey show. And I want to plug DJ Fat Tony's podcast. It's called The Recovery. It's on YouTube. It's on podcast channels. It's wherever you want podcasts and it's basically talking about recovery with dj fat tony he's had some cool guests he had russell brand he had kelly osborne he had brandon novak throw him a i wish i had a good cockney expression throw my mate a nod and listen to the recovery it's not great not a great uh cockney but i i really enjoyed uh dj fat tony on the show i thought he delivered some some classic Classically British, high-end, fucking poly-substance dopey. And for that, I am grateful. So that was the good news. Now, the bad news is, if you listen to the show, you know that I, uh, I, I want reviews. So if you're, if you're a Dopey Nation member, if you're a fan of the show, go on iTunes, leave a five-star review, write something nice, but please, or leave a five-star review and don't write something nice. But don't leave a one-star review and write something terribly mean. And that's what happened uh, this week. And guess who called me to tell me about it? Nobody but my father. 
and my father, for some reason, is currently out of pocket, and I can't get him on the phone to read this review. And I know he's going to listen to it and be pissed that I didn't set it up that he should read this review, but I'm going to read this miserable review. All right, Dopey Nation, are you with me? Here we go. It's called Listen to Chris's Episodes, One Star, by ADOCOG, September 20th, 2020. Unfortunately, this was never about recovery or addiction for Dave. Dave parlayed the only thing he was good at, junkie, to try and be famous. He tried to get people, he tried to get famous people from Sopranos instead of junkies and OG guests like Chris R.I.P. tried to do. Toodles for Chris. I unsubscribed recently. He started a paid subscription podcast because nobody would pay for advertising. Sad. Now, first of all, you know, you know, it didn't get me as upset as one star reviews tend to get me because ADOCOG is obviously not paying attention to what's going on. First of all, I think he's upset and he's probably high, but he's upset because I set up the Patreon. I don't know why that should get him upset. Because I'm trying to make a little bit of money, ADOCOG is pissed. I also need to say this without any sort of hesitation or reservation. When we started making the show, it was never about recovery or addiction for me. It was always about having a podcast. All I've ever wanted to be since I was a teenager was a fucking talk show host. So ADOCOG, why don't you do your homework, man? That's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to try and be famous. Also, how famous can I be when I'm fucking anonymous, you fucking stupid fucking idiot? Also, how many fucking ads are on the beginning of this episode, you fucking asshole? Anyway, that is my rant at ADOCOG. And if you leave a review, leave a nice review. Like here, listen to this nice review. It's, it's called Relevant to Everyone, Not Just Addicts with Five Stars. And irrelevant to everyone, whose real name is Mary Anthe, says, along with everyone else, I found Dopey after the This American Life episode and started listening from the beginning. I am not afflicted in the traditional sense, and though I've had plenty of friends and family who struggle, that isn't why I listen. I started because the story was gripping and Dave and Chris were so lovable and relatable and very entertaining. I've stayed listening every week because the wisdom dispensed in this podcast is relevant and healing for all of us. Whether drugs and alcohol are the problem, I'm sorry, whether drugs and alcohol are the problem or we have some other heavy burden. I listen to a lot of podcasts more explicitly about healing, trauma, the power of vulnerability, and living without shame. But Dave and the Dopey Nation actually walk the talk and do it better than any I've found. This is a radically honest, sweet, hilarious, and powerful podcast, and I recommend it to anyone, especially ADOCOG, who I'm sure is listening. Now, there's other big news for ADOCOG. What ADOCOG doesn't know is how tirelessly we at Dopey work, or I at Dopey work, or we, at getting addicts some help. And we've had a scholarship program running. I think we've had six people in the scholarship program, and I think we have our seventh scholarship right now. Our friend Justin Cambria, who works at Turnbridge, is heading it up for us, and he placed this guy, Alexander K., at treatment. Alexander sent in this amazing voicemail. I want to play it for you guys. Here it is. What's up, Dave? Dopey Nation. This is Alexander K. calling from Father Martin Ashley Rehab Center in 
beautiful Havre de Grasse, Maryland. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. I'm right on the bay, right on the Chesapeake Bay. It's beautiful. Um, at least it looks beautiful. I've only seen the four walls of my room so far because I'm on the quarantine portion of my stay here. We're not allowed to leave our rooms for five days uh, due to COVID. So I'm going a little crazy in here, just writing and reading. And I think I changed my clothes five times today for God knows what reason, because I'm not seeing anybody. Um, Trying to turn my Keurig cups into cold brew, so they're a little bit stronger. So we'll see how that works out. I got to filter it with a sock tomorrow morning. So hopefully tomorrow morning I'll have a freshly brewed cup of uh, fruit of the loom cold brew. I don't know. We'll see. So, you know, basically I was an addict or I am an addict, uh, you know, and I've been shooting dope and fentanyl and suboxone for 12 years now just interchanging them depending on where I am at life you know and I've been off and on subs throughout the whole stint of my addiction and I would say about 85% of the time I was doing them I was shooting them um yeah you know that's no good um, you know, I moved, I moved to Baltimore and that's where I, when I was 20 years old, and that's really where my addiction took off, you know, and when you grow up with idols like, uh, Dee Dee Ramone and Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and Johnny Thunders and, you know, I was obsessed with them and I was in a touring band myself and I thought, you know, what's the one thing I got to do? I got to do to be just like my heroes, you know, and that's shoot fucking smack. And so I just started doing it. Um, you know, I just started doing heroin. I never did pills. I just wanted to be the dirty fucking punk rock guy like I idolize, you know. You know, they're all dead now. They all died. I'm sure they all I don't even know. It was just, it's no good. But, uh, you know, so I was on tour once and I met a girl and she put a needle in my arm and then that girl became my girlfriend and she moved from Hollywood to Baltimore, lived with me for about a year, got super strung out and she moved back home and got clean and has been clean ever since. And, you know, I'm super proud of her, but I'm fucking, I moved home to get clean and then I just stayed shooting dope in my room in my parents' house. Um, it's just the depression has just gotten so, is so bad, you know, being isolated alone and having no friends. And, and I went to rehab once about two and a half years ago. And then, you know, after that, I did a six-month stay at a, at a halfway house and completed the IOP program and had six months clean and sober, uh, no subs, no weed, no nothing. But in 12 years, those six months, minus uh, a weekend of getting high in the middle, like three months, then got high, then three more months, um, though that's the longest I've had 
clean and sober in 12 years, and I'm just fucking tired, man. Um, and, you know, I've been listening to Dopey since the beginning. I, I've, I was trying to remember the other day how I, how I heard about it or when I first started listening to it, and I just, I can't, I can't remember. I don't know. I guess it's not really important why, but what's important is that I did find it. And, uh, you know, I work at a, um, I work at a golf course and I mow lawns at golf co- at the golf course and do a bunch of shit, but I'm always by myself and I don't have any friends. And, you know, I listen to Dopey all day long and I have, you know, I started over from the beginning so when I hear you guys go back and forth and laugh and I'm laughing at your jokes and guys, you are se- like, I mean, when Chris was around, you guys were seriously the two funniest fucking people in the world, just making fun of each other, but in the most loving, like cute dickheadish way, like it's just perfect. I don't know. Um, but when I laugh at the same time you guys are laughing, you know, it makes me feel like I have friends for a little bit, you know, and then I fucking go go home and and then I'm alone again. But so mo- mo- most recently I've been <clears throat> I got kicked out of my house for my parents finding me on my floor blue again for like the sixth or seventh time and I've been in a sober house and I've been shooting my subs Taking Fenibit, which uh, not a lot of people know about, but Jed from Church and Other Drugs knows all about it, um, and press bars that don't come up in uh, in the piss test, you know. And I'm I'm just it's I'm probably at the darkest spot I've ever been at. Like I want to, I'm in a sober house. All I want to do is scream at people that I want help, but I'm so afraid to do it, and. Uh, it's just it just sucks feeling alone when you're surrounded by people that are there to help you, but you're too afraid to ask for it. And the other day, I was listening to one of the newer episodes of Dopey where Dave had Smile and Joe on, and I uh, it was a great episode, by the way. But I messaged Dave and said, "Dave, this is the closest you're going to get to getting Dee Dee Ramone on there." And you know, we had a little back and forth, and then I was like, "I'm stuck, man." You know, I'm fucking stuck. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I, you know, I wrote my whole fucking life story out. And he was like, if you're serious, I can help you get into a place. And I said, I'm fucking serious. And since that text was sent, there's been five different people, shout out mainly to Justin, that have helped me gotten into this amazing rehab. And I'm here now. Um, they're detox. They're they're tapering me off the subs. They got me off the fenibit. They're tapering me off the bars. Um, it's gonna get rough for a little bit, but I'm I'm serious. Like I'm gonna take every suggestion they give me. Like I'm gonna I want this because those six months I had two years ago or whatever, those were the happiest six months I've ever had, and I just want to get back there because I know I have good in me. I know I can do good things, but these drugs are just fucking holding me back. 
So I don't know. This voicemail is probably all over the place. I've redone it 10 times and deleted it. So I don't know. Play it if you want. Don't play it if you want. But, uh, you know, I just want to give a major thanks to Dave um, and Justin for helping me get in here with uh, the Dopey Toodles scholarship, you know. So I guess guess that's it, you know. so thanks a lot, guys. Stay, st- stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Kind of wish it didn't sound so retarded. Oh, my God. Alexander K. with the fucking Jack Nicholson on heroin voice. The fucking Fenibit coming off the Fenibit and the subs and everything else and the Dopey Love on the Toodles for Chris scholarship at the Ashley Addiction Treatment Center in Hava de Grasse, Maryland. Yeah, I need to get some bud. Do you have a de Grasse? It's the best name I've ever heard. Alexander K., I wish you luck, and uh, anybody can do it. You know, if anybody's done it, then you can do it too. It's that simple. I wish Chris was alive. Um, he'd be blown away by the fact that we get to help anybody, and I'm incredibly, you know, I feel the chills that we get to do it in Chris's name. Justin Cambria, you're kicking asses out there. If anyone in the Dopey Nation is serious about getting help and they feel totally fucked, uh, we might be able to get you help. And I guess that's it. So fucking ADOCOG. You see, and, and even Alexander K mentioned Smiling Joe, who's just a junkie out there in recovery. ADOCOG. I like, can't get to bed at night. I think about stupid ADOCOG. And I never did Oxycontin. I just think about this dude. Anyway, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Reddit, follow us on Twitter, follow this stupid dopey film picks tournament that stupid Dan made me do with a gun to my head. But who knows who's going to win the dopey film tournament? Thank you, everybody who commits so much time and effort and love to our little podcast and our little community. It means a lot to me. I know it would mean a lot to Chris as well. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desires, all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad bad desires all I ever had and my shadows getting smaller and smaller and it's time to where I stand shadows getting smaller and smaller and it's time to where I stand and I wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind 
I'll take the high road, however far it winds. Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad. And I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. 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 And these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had.